Reading from Scripture this morning or this evening is coming from Matthew chapter one, <clears throat> Matthew one, verses eighteen to twenty-five. Matthew chapter one, verses eighteen to twenty-five. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way: when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Pray for God's help for us to understand and believe his word now. Let's pray. Lord, we know who we are. Even in you, we know that so often we miss your truth or so often we don't want to see your truth. That's because of the sin that is still inside of us. And Lord, we would pray tonight that you would work powerfully through your spirit to open our eyes again and to soften our hearts so that when we see your truth, that we would be ready to listen and to be changed by you. Lord, we pray that you would do this, not because we are wonderful, but because you are. And you have chosen us to be your people. You've chosen us to shape us to be like you. And we pray that you would do part of that great work now as we come to you in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening our sermon comes from 1 Samuel chapter 4. That's 1 Samuel chapter 4. So you're turning there. If you remember where we were, we were just in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And when we got to the end of that chapter, the future of Israel looked very bright. God had graciously chosen Samuel to be his servant, and that meant that Israel finally had consistent messages from God after almost 300 years. But then we turn the page and we reach 1 Samuel 4, and this is the story of one of the darkest days in all of Israel's history. The ark of God is taken and Israel loses God's presence. We see very clearly that God has a lot more work to do with Israel than just giving them a prophet. God has to do a lot more work in them to bring them back to himself. So let's read the whole chapter together now. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, 
The elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. He said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, And his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The main idea of this chapter is that God judges Israel to teach them about his true glory. What God is doing is judging Israel to teach them about his true glory. We're going to see three basic points tonight. We're going to see how Israel was seeking God's power in verses 1 to 11. We'll see, secondly, mourning God's judgment in verses 12 to 22. And finally, we'll look at trusting in God's promise. So firstly, seeking God's power, verses 1 through 11. It's the first half of the passage. And the passage begins with a crushing defeat. We just read about it. Israel is defeated by the Philistines and about 4,000 Israelites die. 
Now, when the, when the people come back to the camp, the leaders gather to figure out what went wrong. And they start out, actually, with the right question. Verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That kind of question may sound kind of odd to our ears. We might be expecting a discussion of tactics or logistics. Something must have gone wrong. The Philistines were just better. They knew something we didn't know. That's not what they were trying to ask to figure out why they lost. The elders of Israel know the real answer. The Lord defeated Israel. This is a a statement of God's sovereignty. God is in control and God is the one who is at work to defeat Israel. But it's also, and even more, a reflection of God's covenant with Israel. Remember that God promised blessings and curses for Israel's obedience or disobedience to his law. You can see them, for instance, in Deuteronomy 28. And if you looked at that chapter, you would see that one of the specific curses that God promised for sin was that the Lord would defeat Israel. So by asking this question, it seems like the elders of Israel are heading in the right direction. They're trying to figure out why God has defeated them. But then they provide a very, very wrong answer. Verse 3, here's their solution. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from our enemies. Why is this the wrong answer? Thought about why, why... Is this the very, very wrong answer? Well, think about what they didn't do. Think about what the elders did not do. They did not reflect really on why God had defeated them. Again, think about the covenant. God defeated them because of their sin. And yet they did not even stop to reflect and to repent. And they also never asked for God's direction. Look again at how this chapter begins. Verse 1, now the word of Samuel came to all Israel. This is the last time that Samuel is mentioned until, until chapter 7, 3. And that is very intentional because these chapters reveal Israel's sin. This is kind of Israel left to its own devices instead of seeking God's word. Even though Israel had access to God's word through God's prophet, they don't turn to God. They make no effort to ask God why they lost or ask God what they should do next. And yet all they had to do is go a few miles down the road to Shiloh and ask Samuel. That's all that was required. Compare their actions to Israel's actions in the time of Joshua, especially when they were defeated at Ai. How do Joshua and his, the elders around him respond to that defeat? They fell down on their faces in God's presence, begging him, pleading to know why he has done this. And then when God speaks, they follow his commands to find Achan's sin and remove it from the camp. But the elders of Israel and all the people of Israel followed their own plan in 1 Samuel. They were convinced of their own plan that the presence of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord would bring certain victory. They may have remembered 
how God had been powerfully present with his people in the ark. You know, previous generations, think again of time of Joshua, the ark was the first one into the waters of the Jordan as the priest carried it in. As soon as the first foot touched the water, the water split. Or think also a little bit further as they attack Jericho. The people are all lined up, marching around Jericho, and what is going in front? It's the ark of the Lord. God is powerfully present with his people in those times past. But the difference between the time of Joshua and the time of Samuel is this. The people of Israel are treating the ark now as a guarantee that God would be present in helping them. As long as they have the ark, they will win. It seems like the narrator actually purposefully stresses the fatal flaw of this plan. Do you notice what the narrator calls the ark? First, he calls it the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And then later, it's the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. Verse 4. And that second description, especially in verse 4 in particular, highlights God's power and presence, right? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of armies who sits in power between the two cherubim who are above the ark. But the ark is the ark of the covenant. The ark was meant to show the people the essence of God's covenant with his people. He is present in power, yes. But remember that the law of God was what was inside the ark. God's presence was here. The law of God was here. And between them was the mercy seat. That's where the blood of the sacrifice on the day of atonement was placed. God was present with his people because he graciously accepted the sacrifices for their sins in breaking his law. God chose to be with his people. God chose to live with them. And he provided a way for his people to be with him. But the Israelites of Samuel's day have repeatedly violated the covenant. They have violated the covenant that the ark pictured and provided for. We've already seen the sins of Israel. But we've seen two particular men throughout Samuel so far, Hophni and Phinehas. And who is present with the ark as it enters the camp? Hophni and Phinehas themselves. These are the men who utterly despise God, who are stealing his sacrifices and corrupting his worship. Do you think the Lord of the covenant is pleased to be in their presence? No. No, he does not want to be in their presence or in the presence of his sinful people. You cannot get much worse than this. Israel's actions amount to an effort to manipulate God. That's what they're doing. It's a mechanistic approach to God. If we do this, God will certainly do this. If we bring the ark, God will save us. You can see how misguided they are. Look at their confidence. In verse 5, they shout with such a mighty shout that the Philistines miles away hear them and are scared. But God is not a machine that can be used for our benefit. You know, this kind of thinking has continued to affect the church in every age. We can assume that God will bless us if we just do the right things. Sometimes that thinking is, is very clear. Health and wealth gospel is a perfect example. Pray enough, give enough, do enough, and God will do whatever you want. That's a lie. 
That's a false gospel. But that kind of thinking can actually affect all of us. We can easily assume that God will bless us because our theology is right. Our theology is good. It's true. That's not why God blesses us. Or think about prayer. Our prayer. We're starting a monthly day of prayer and fasting, right? And we can easily start to think that God will bless us because we're praying so hard as a congregation or we're praying just so well. You know, God does reward faithfulness. That's true. We see that throughout Scripture. But God doesn't answer us because we are so good. God answers us because Jesus Christ is so good and he loves us and blesses us in Christ. In these verses here, we see that God exposes his people's false religion. Look at verses 10 to 11. There's the great battle, and the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Israel loses 30,000 men, they lose their two priests, and they lose the ark of God all in one day. This is one of the worst days in all of Israel's history. Think about what has happened before in Israel's history. They've lost many battles before. You can see it in Exodus. You can see it in Numbers. You can see it all the way through Judges. They lost a lot of battles, actually, in the time of the Judges. In fact, it was a consistent trend. They lost time and time again when their enemies invaded them. But they had never lost their priests, and they never, ever lost the ark. Consider for a minute how significant the loss of the ark is. The ark is the symbol of God's presence, and that symbol is now gone. But more than that, the people no longer have a way to be right with God. They cannot offer the required sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Their sins cannot be atoned for in the way that God has designed. It is hard for us to understand just how significant the loss of the ark for Israel truly was. Now, God didn't completely abandon his people. We want to be careful not to make the same mistake that the Israelites made and bind God so closely to his ark that when the ark goes, God goes. But Israel does experience an absence of God's presence because God had promised to be present with his people in a special way through the ark. I've already mentioned the Day of Atonement. You see his presence there. But also consider what God says to Moses. As God commands Moses to make the ark, listen to what he says in Exodus 25. There at the ark, I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. God was present in a special way with his people, and the way he chose to do that was through the ark. So when the ark is captured, God has removed that special way that he was present with his people. You and I can experience a loss of God's presence because of our personal sin. We can experience that. Think about David's prayer in Psalm 51. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. We can experience that in our own lives. But what Israel experiences 
is so much worse because God has withdrawn his special covenantal presence from his people. Why did Israel lose? Why did Israel lose so many men? Why did they lose their priests? Why did they lose God's presence? They may not realize it, but it's clear. It's because of their sin. God is judging Israel for their sins. And it's not just their sin of misusing the ark. That's the latest and greatest sin in a regular corruption of God's worship. Remember Hophni and Phinehas and their repeated sins. God kills them on this day because they regularly despise God and they were responsible for teaching the people to do likewise. Israel's sin and sins and pattern of sins were terrible. And God has been remarkably patient with sinful Israel. He has actually continued to be present and bless his faithful people in the midst of this sin. Think about Elkanah, Hannah, and Samuel. God was present with them and he blessed them. But now he judges. He carries out his very specific promised judgment against Hophni and Phinehas and he brings the judgment that the rest of his people deserve. But as we see God's judgment, that actually leads us secondly into our well, second point, mourning God's judgment in verses 12 to 22. Because the news of God's judgment, the news of that defeat, the loss of the ark, quickly reaches the people of Shiloh. A man from the tribe of Benjamin, he runs from the battle line straight back to Shiloh and tells the people the bad news. And the author of 1 Samuel chooses to focus on two specific reactions to the news of God's judgment. The reaction of Eli and the reaction of Phineas's wife. Both Eli and Phineas's wife mourn the news of God's judgment. Just before we look at the specific reactions that they have, it's striking that God chooses these two people to focus on. Eli, even as a priest, um, he was a great sinner. God has already condemned him. And Phineas's wife, she was the wife of a terrible priest. She also is a striking person to mourn God's just judgment. Let's look first at Eli's reaction to the news. The man from Benjamin tells Eli the bad news. Israel's defeated and Hophni and Phinehas are dead. That would be shocking enough. But the real shock for Eli is the loss of the ark. Verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Eli was able to accept another defeat of Israel. Eli was even able to accept God's promised judgment on his family. See, the death of Hophni and Phinehas was the way that God confirmed his promised judgment on all of Eli's family. Eli was able to accept all this, but Eli was not able to accept the loss of the ark. As he heard that news, he understood probably for the first time the depth of his sin and the depth of God's judgment, because now all of Israel was suffering in part because Eli was not able to lead them well as their priest and judge. Eli had judged them for 40 years, and he had failed. That is his reaction as he hears the news of the loss of the ark. The, section, the second reaction to God's judgment came from Phineas's wife. From verse, verse uh, 19, it looks like the shock of the news caused her to go into labor. 
And soon she was dying. A time of great joy, the birth of a child, quickly turned into a time of suffering and death. She doesn't even respond. She doesn't even respond when the woman helping her gives her the good news that she has had a son. That would have been some of the best news that any Israelite mother could have heard. You have a beautiful baby boy. But Phineas's wife cannot find any joy because God has judged Israel. She rightly understands, as she says, that the, the glory has departed from Israel. She knows this is true because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She even names her son Ichabod to testify to this fact. Ichabod means no glory, or where is the glory? This little boy Ichabod is going to be a living reminder that God has left Israel. Phineas' wife understands and mourns because of what has happened. In some ways, she's actually the best theologian of the entire passage. When she speaks, for instance, of the glory departing Israel, she means that God has left his people. It's very clear. God's glory was the visible representation of his presence. Think about the dedication of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus or of the temple in 1 Kings. In both cases, God's glory filled the building in the form of a cloud to show that he was present and pleased with his people. Later on in the prophets, especially in the book of Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord shows up again. This time also, like 1 Samuel, the glory of the Lord leaves. Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord leaving Jerusalem in Ezekiel 10. That's leading up to the Babylonian exile, the worst judgment that God sends to his people. So when she sees, when she knows that the glory of the Lord is departing, she knows how serious God's judgment on Israel truly is. But that's where she's left. She is left knowing that God has abandoned his people. You can feel the absolute despair by the end of this chapter. What hope is there for Israel? There is great hope. There is great hope. We see that thirdly as we look at trusting in God's promise. It's true that this was a time of Ichabod. This was a time that God had left, but there was still hope for God's people. It wasn't because they were so good. We've seen that so clearly. No, it's because God is so good. If you look through the next few chapters, you see that Israel doesn't seem to understand God's message here very well. Uh, there is no sign of Israel's repentance until after the Philistines deliver the ark back to Israel. And that repentance and renewal is led by Samuel, the very same person, the very same prophet who the people have steadfastly ignored in our passage. It's not, God does not, uh, God is not waiting for them though. God is good to them. God actually continues to keep his covenant with his people and he works to bring them back to himself. It's because of his covenant that he doesn't completely abandon his people. It is severe judgment here, but he does not write them off. And he graciously restores his presence again when the ark returns in chapter 6. This child Ichabod, though, stands as a constant reminder that God has removed his presence. We've seen that. 
But as we look at redemptive history, we see that there was another child born much later who is Emmanuel, God with us. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the very Son of God who came to be present with his people and to save us from our sins and to bring us into God's presence forever. This is really the promise that stands in the background of 1 Samuel 4. God does not leave his people because he has promised that he will be with his people in the person of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who actually comes with the glory of God to be present with his people. God's glory comes to his people in Christ, not in a cloud, but in a person. John says it this way, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is the marvel of the Incarnation. That God, the glorious God, would choose to enter his sinful creation to live with his sinful people. We are sinners, and we deserve to be completely separated from God. But God comes to us. He doesn't wait for us to come to him. He comes to us in grace and mercy. And then he goes further by dying for the people that he has chosen. And he promises, he guarantees, that he will never leave or forsake his people. We see that even in the New Testament, as Christ ascends, he promises to send the Holy Spirit, who is God himself. And he will be present with us powerfully and personally. John again, Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. God cannot be more present with you than he is with the Holy Spirit. And that means that God is always present with us now through Christ and his work by the Holy Spirit. The problem of 1 Samuel 4, the presence of God, is met in Christ. And God's presence with us now gives us great assurance. If he has saved us, he will never, ever abandon us. He may hide his presence for a time, it's true, as a judgment or maybe as a a way to make us grow in our faith, but he will never, ever, ever abandon us. Remember that. Believe that. Tell yourself that during dark and confusing times in your life. God actually cannot abandon us because if he did that, he would be going against his own character and his own promise. We have God's presence now in even a deeper way than what the people of Samuel's day had. But there's more waiting for us because Jesus promises to come again and take us to himself. That where I am, you may be also. That's heaven. Jesus is telling us about heaven. But heaven is more than just a place. Look at Revelation. At the center of the place is the people. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants, that's us. We will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The beauty of heaven is the presence of God forever. That's the promise that really does stand behind 1 Samuel 4. We see the need so clearly. God's people need God's presence. And then we see the promise being fulfilled in Christ. We see God fulfilling his promise as he sends his own son to be present with us. And he continues to be present with us now 
And he offers the hope of being present with him forever in heaven. Do you know how great a gift God has given us to be present with us, even in our sin, even in our shortcomings, even in our doubts? God is an amazingly gracious God to bless us and to be present with us. As we go through the Christian life, one of the, the great uh, comforts, as I've said before, is that God will not leave us. God will not forsake us. That is really the one thing that keeps us going. We can't go by ourselves. We need God's powerful presence as a church and as people day by day by day. And look forward to heaven. Look forward to heaven because we see our ups and downs in this life. We see the ways that we fail God. We see the ways that we deserve to be cut off from his presence, and he doesn't do it. And he doesn't do it because he's gracious to us in Christ and he's promised us so much more in heaven. Look forward to heaven. Worship him now, but look forward even more to heaven when we will never, ever spend a second of our lives outside of the presence of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God who has come to us to be with us. In Jesus Christ, who is our Emmanuel, you are powerfully present with us, and you love to be that way. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to follow you, that you would help us to remember that we are living in your presence, to come and to seek your grace, to seek your power. Lord, we pray that you would also... Change our hearts so that what we desire more than anything else is to be with you, to have that fellowship and communion with you now, and to be with you in heaven forever. Give us that longing and that desire. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.